Turn with me to the book of Habakkuk in your copy of God's Word. If you need a Bible, we have some back here on our resource table. Feel free to grab one of those. And as always, if you don't have one at home, please keep it. Let it be our gift to you today. The book of Habakkuk, last week we launched into this book, and we explored the biblical concept of lament, lament, which is questioning God, expressing our doubt, our fear, our grief, our outrage to God, something that's so present, so prevalent in the pages of Scripture, particularly the Old Testament, and yet is almost non-existent in modern American Christianity. But what we found is that lament is not only a valid way to express ourselves to God, but we also found that uh, the biblical precedent is that God often responds to the laments of his people. Um, Even if he doesn't always answer all of our questions, he loves to respond. And thus is the case with Habakkuk, the prophet, if you remember, He laments to God concerning the spiritual state of his home, the nation of Judah. And God responds by saying, well, you know, Habakkuk, since you bring it up, I'm actually doing something. You may not be aware of it, but I'm doing a work in your day. I'm actually raising up the Chaldeans, or who we often refer to as the Babylonians. I'm raising them up to invade your land and overtake you. Now, obviously, that wasn't the response that Habakkuk was looking for, right? That wasn't what he was hoping for. That was not the outcome that he had uh, in his mind. In modern terms, it would be like us crying out to God on behalf of America and, and saying, God, there's so much wickedness and polarization, hatred of other people and outright unbelief all the way down the line to just complete debauchery. God, when are you going to step in in America and do something? And God responds by saying, well, you know, actually, I, I'm raising up the Russians and they're going to invade and overtake America Full stop. Like, am I not communicating clearly, God? Like, am I not not making myself known to you and like what I would like to see happen? Yet what we know is that with the benefit of hindsight, God was actually answering Habakkuk's prayer, albeit in a way that the prophet never could have imagined, that he couldn't have seen. The Babylonians were actually just one step in the process of God's answer, an answer whose fullness... Habakkuk would not see in his lifetime that would come to fruition many generations later, and we're the beneficiaries of this answered prayer even today. So would you look with me at the book of Habakkuk? We're beginning in chapter 1, verse 12, and we're going to read on into chapter 2. This is Habakkuk now responding to God's initial response. Are you not from everlasting? O Lord, my God, my Holy One, we shall not die. O Lord, you have ordained them as a judgment, and you, O Rock, have established them for reproof. You who are of purer eyes than to see evil and cannot look at wrong, why do you idly look at traitors and remain silent when the wicked swallows up the man more righteous than he? You make mankind like the fish of the sea, like crawling things that have no ruler. He brings all of them up with a hook. He drags them out with his net. He gathers them in his dragnet, so he rejoices and is glad. Therefore, he sacrifices to his net and makes offerings to his dragnet. For by them he lives in luxury and his food is rich. 
Is he then to keep on emptying his net and mercilessly killing nations forever? I will take my stand at my watch post and station myself on the tower and look out to see what he will say to me and what I will answer concerning my complaint. And the Lord answered me, Write the vision and make it plain on tablets so he may run who reads it. For still the vision awaits its appointed time. It hastens to the end. It will not lie. If it seems slow, wait for it. It will surely come. It will not delay. Behold, his soul is puffed up. It is not upright within him, but the righteous shall live by his faith. Moreover, wine is a traitor, an arrogant man who is never at rest. His greed is as wide as Sheol, like death he has never enough. He gathers for himself all nations and collects as his own all peoples. The word of the Lord. So Habakkuk responds to the Lord. The Lord again responds to Habakkuk. And I want to break this down. Uh, God's response to Habakkuk raises a critical question. How can God use one wicked nation to like punish another wicked nation? Because in Habakkuk's eyes, Judah definitely has a sin problem. Like, that's why he's crying out to God in the first place. They are spiritually unfaithful. The land is filled with injustice. Yet Habakkuk would also look at Babylon as being more wicked, right? He probably thinks this way because he knows that there are still people in the land of Judah like himself who love Yahweh, who love God, and want to follow his decrees. This probably was not the case at all in Babylon. So how is it that God can seemingly allow Babylon's wickedness and expand their territory and add to their wealth, but not Judah's? Look with me at verse 12. Are you not from everlasting, O Lord, my God, my Holy One? We shall not die. O Lord, you have ordained them as a judgment, and you, O Rock, have established them for reproof. You who are of purer eyes than to see evil and cannot look at wrong, why do you idly look at traitors and remain silent when the wicked swallows up the man more righteous than he? So Habakkuk begins by making what might seem like a strange statement to us. God has told him that he is raising up the Babylonians to overtake the land, yet Habakkuk says, we shall not die. This is, this is a little section of this verse that is somewhat in debate over the centuries. There are some ancient texts that read, you shall not die. As if Habakkuk is saying to God, God, you are from everlasting and you will never die. But the vast majority of scholars seem to think that the original text actually said, we shall not die. Meaning, God, we are your people. Like you have made a covenant with us to bless the descendants of Abraham forever. So it's almost like he's saying, come on, God, you're not going to like destroy us. You're not going to totally wipe us out. You're the everlasting God. Your love endures forever. You won't let us be totally consumed. And I think the implied us there is maybe not the nation as a whole, as much as it is those who are righteous in the land, those who love the Lord. So this reads as if Habakkuk is trying to understand what God has said, almost like he's in denial a little bit. But the question remains, the end of verse 13, why do you remain silent when the wicked swallows up the man more righteous than he? 
He then goes into this extended fishing metaphor. Look at verse 14. You make mankind like the fish of the sea, like crawling things that have no ruler. He brings all of them up with a hook. He drags them out with his net. He gathers them in his dragnet, so he rejoices and is glad. Therefore, he sacrifices to his net and makes offerings to his dragnet. For them, for by them he lives in luxury and his food is rich. Is he then to keep on emptying his net and mercilessly killing nations forever? Who are we talking about there? Who is the he? The, the he here is not God. It's not God who is throwing out the net. It's not God that is proverbially uh, putting hooks into people. It's Babylon. The hooks and nets that Habakkuk is describing are not fishing implements, but instead they're metaphors for weapons of war, which are essentially the objects of Babylonian worship, the things that they really give themselves to and give their loyalty to and put their hope and trust in. It's not some god, but it's themselves and their ability to wage war and come out victorious. It's in their implements of battle. But there's some evidence here also that Habakkuk may not be speaking in like a totally metaphorical way or a totally symbolic way. Um, There's some historical evidence that the Babylonians would actually put hooks into the noses of those that they conquered in battle and lead them away. In the same way, there have been carvings that have been found in rocks in Mesopotamia depicting people being hauled away in large nets, like the victims of battle literally being dragged away with horses and nets. Additionally, you might remember when we studied the prophet Amos, Amos said in chapter 4, he said, The Lord has sworn by his holiness that behold, this is a prophecy, behold, the days are coming upon you when they shall take you away with hooks, even the last of you with fish hooks. All that to say, Habakkuk may literally be describing the tactics of the Babylonians and asking, God, how can you even watch that? How can you even look at something like that? And so chapter 2 begins with Habakkuk saying, I'm now going to wait for the Lord's response. He talks about going into a tower, to like a watchtower. The idea is almost like he's at the gate of the city, like watching to see how God's going to respond to him. Look at verse 2. Write the vision, God says to Habakkuk. Make it plain on tablets. So he may run who reads it. For still the vision awaits its appointed time. It hastens to the end. It will not lie. If it seems slow, wait for it. It will surely come. It will not delay. Behold, his soul is puffed up. It's not upright within him. But the righteous shall live by his faith. He then goes on to talk more about the people of Babylon, the armies coming in like drunken men and arrogant men who are never at rest and their greed is as wide as Sheol, which is like the Hebrew place of the dead, this place that is seemingly, um, you can, you, like all the dead can go there. It, it's like, like it's never ending the number of people that you can cram into Sheol. And it's like his death is never enough. And he gathers for himself. He, Babylon, gathers for himself all nations and collects all his own peoples. So God tells Habakkuk, write this down because I am doing something 
Um, and and I'm, I'm, I'm doing something that is going to take a long time to come to fruition. And so I want you to put this on tablets so that it lasts. I want you to make a record of this. This is all coming, but it's a waiting, it's a pointed time. So you, Habakkuk, you wait for it as well. Wait and watch. And, and so one of the first things I want to remind us of this morning is this, that God answers prayer, but he answers prayer in his timing. Like if you've ever even dabbled in prayer, you've probably heard the saying that there's power in prayer. And I think that's true, but you've also learned that we don't like control God in prayer. Prayer is not some tactic by which we can manipulate God or manipulate him to do exactly what we want him to do. And yet the scriptures tell us things like Psalm 37, 4, which says, delight yourself in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. But we also aren't in control of the timeline or the details about how he goes about that. And notice it's a conditional statement. Delight yourself in the Lord and then he will give you the desires of your heart. It begins with, it's what David mentioned earlier in the psalm that we read. It's this idea of finding my joy and my hope and my purpose and my very reason for being in the Lord. That he is like the, 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 the well, the font of all of those things. These words are echoed by Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 11, 7, rather, 7, 11. If you then, though you are evil, he's talking to his followers here, the disciples. If you then, though you are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give good gifts to those who ask him? Now remember, we said that God was actually answering Habakkuk's prayer, but that was really hard for Habakkuk to see. In fact, I don't know that he could fully see it. How was God answering his prayer? Well, first of all, God was ultimately purging the nation of Judah, purging the nation of Judah of its wickedness while leaving behind a remnant of Jews who would one day return and rebuild. As we've talked about, the people get carried away into exile. This happened uh, several decades prior with the northern kingdom of Israel. It was the Assyrians, remember, that came in and invaded, overtook the northern kingdom of Israel, and they carried the people away into exile. Except with the north, they were just kind of scattered, and they never came back together again. If you've heard of the lost tribes of Israel, that's who we're talking about there, people who never came back together to get, again in any significant way or any formalized way. And yet with Judah... You have a group of people who are also carried away into exile, but yet who return and rebuild Jerusalem and rebuild their society. It would be from this remnant also, and this is not small by any stretch, to be from this remnant and out of this rebuilt Judah that Jesus Christ would come offering true salvation, not simply from human enemies, but from the ultimate enemy. Habakkuk could not see all that, right? And yet what God is setting in motion that is ultimately fulfilled in Christ is, is happening in and through the Babylonians. Habakkuk had no ability. That's one of the things we talked about last week in, in his lament and the way God responded to Job and Job's lament 
was to go, guys, you don't see in the way that I see, right? Like, you don't have the scope that I have. You don't have the vision that I have. You are not eternal, right? As he says here about God, you are from everlasting. Habakkuk is not from everlasting. Weston is not from everlasting. You are not from everlasting, right? So we can ask things of God. We can desire things of God. And the scripture seems to suggest he loves to give us things, that we desire, as James says, particularly when those things are in keeping with his will, like when they are things that are good and honoring to God. And yet we cannot see everything that God is doing. We cannot see the way God's answering our prayers. We can't see the way that God is bringing maybe negative situations uh, all the way around to being positive situations. And, and, and yet we've all experienced this in our lives Undoubtedly, you can look back at your life, even if you're in your 20s or 30s or 40s, that you can look back and you can see a time in your life where you just didn't know how things were going to go or what was going to come out of some terrible situation that you were in. And yet you look back now and you see what has happened. Like you see what the Lord has done and how he's worked things out for you. He's doing that uh, on, on short scale, time scales. He's doing that over eons as well. And it's truly incredible. And yet it's something that we don't have full access to. Uh, The theological term is progressive revelation. That God is sort of slowly revealing himself, honestly, I think in ways that we are able to somehow grasp and understand. At no point does God kind of unfurl the entire scroll and it just kind of rolls and keeps on rolling, right? So that we can see the entire plan. Instead, as we said last week, we see through a glass darkly, Paul says, or through a mirror dimly or something to that effect. This idea that we can kind of see through it, but we really can't see the full picture. We get glimpses of what's on the other side of the glass, but not the whole thing. Habakkuk couldn't see what was coming. And everything that God was doing had an appointed time, as he alludes to. But within the Lord's answer, we see a glimmer of hope because what does he say? He injects this notion that the righteous shall live by faith. The righteous shall live by faith. Now, when we hear that word righteous, we perhaps think of somebody who's perfect or sinless. And yet the scriptures make the case that there are none who are righteous, not even one. Right? So if that's true, how are there righteous people in the land who will live? Right? How are there people, say, in the land of Judah who will have faith and somehow live if no one is righteous, not even one? Well, well the answer is that there aren't naturally righteous people in the land. Not even one. Not one person who is just born righteous in the land of Judah or in our land today. But what there are and Habakkuk is an example of this, there are people who have faith in God and who desire to be obedient to God even though they are not in and of themselves righteous people, right? Even though they are not in and of themselves sinless people. And and the Bible holds up Abraham as like the quintessential example of this. Um, Abraham and his wife Sarah were childless and yet God promised that they would have a son, didn't he? 
all the way back in the book of Genesis, and that his descendants would be as numerous as the stars in the sky. And, and the land of Judah that Habakkuk was living in was a result, to some extent, of God's promise. God took this one childless couple and multiplied it out into millions and millions and millions and millions of people all the way down through the centuries, even to the time of Habakkuk. What Genesis 15, 6 tells us is that the Lord tells Abraham that despite his age, despite his history, all of this, that, that, that this is going to happen in his life. And what Genesis 15 tells us is that Abraham believed the Lord and it was attributed to him as righteousness or it was accredited to him as righteousness. So don't miss this. Abraham was not righteous. He was not sinless. He was not perfect. And if you've read the book of Genesis, you know he did some sketchy things, right? And yet, because he believed the Lord, meaning he trusted that what God said was truthful and would come to pass, he was, as a result, viewed in God's eyes as being righteous. This was what is called imputed righteousness, Right? He did, not, he did not come up with this righteousness out of his very being or out of himself. It's righteousness that was given to him externally. It was sort of put on him. He was not himself righteous, but because he believed and trusted in God's righteousness, right? that God was not a liar, that God was truthful, the Lord took that little faith and accredited it to him as righteousness. So the Apostle Paul seizes on that idea in Romans 4. And here's what he says in Romans 4. What then shall we say was gained by Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh? For if Abraham was justified by works, meaning his good deeds or even his obedience to God, then he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. Now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. And to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. Just as David also speaks of the blessing of the one to whom God counts righteousness apart from works. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. So what Paul's saying in Romans 4 is that Abraham didn't receive this righteousness because he was himself righteous or because he had done good deeds or good works or anything like that. No, 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 quite the opposite. He, he had no works in his life that could be attributed to him as righteousness. He had nothing to boast about on his own. But because he believed God to be truthful, that faith, that belief in God was counted to him as righteousness. And then he mentioned David who had said, blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. So listen, when the Bible calls us to believe 
in God. I mean, listen, we're Bible Belt people, most of us. We've heard about believing in God our whole life. When the Bible calls us to believe in God, it isn't simply calling us to believe in his existence. It's not simply calling us to believe that he's real. What it is actually calling us to believe in is his truthfulness. In his truthfulness. Paul says, Abraham was not righteous because of his good deeds. It didn't earn him a title or a mantle of righteousness. No, no, no. Abraham was righteous because God named him as being righteous because Abraham believed him to be truthful. But even his, this is how this can get confusing for us, even Abraham's belief that God was truthful was not in and of itself whole-scale righteousness, right? It didn't mean that suddenly he was sinless because he believed God was truthful. It says, no, 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 that attribution of righteousness is something that God gives to Abraham. So it's possible to believe that God exists, but yet not live as if he is truthful, not live as if his promises are real. Don't miss this. This is what has always been the case. Always. God is not looking for perfect people. Just read the Bible, right? Check out the lives of the major characters of Scripture. It is not the story of God picking out the best people, the cream of the human crop. What's he doing? God's choosing people who have no righteousness on their own and is calling them to trust him, to believe that his words are truthful and real, despite their sin, despite themselves, despite their shortcomings. God's not looking for perfect people. He's not looking for people who simply believe that he is there somewhere or believe that he's real. God is looking for people who are willing to live as if, he has, as if what he has said is true and will come to pass. Not just looking for people who believe that he is real, but people who will live as if what he has said is true and will come to pass. As if his words are truth as opposed to lies. Because those are really the only two options. Go all the way back to the garden. What is the temptation presented to the man and the woman in the garden? What does the serpent say to them? You surely won't die. Right? He's responding to the truth of what God has said to the man and the woman. If you eat this fruit of the tree, you will surely die. And what does the enemy do? He pulls up alongside us and he convinces us that God's words are not true. That God is not to be trusted. That God is keeping something from you. That God is keeping the good life from you. That he is holding back on you in some way. And that what you most need if you're going to be happy or fulfilled or live a meaningful life is you most need the thing that he has told you you don't need. Don't believe him. This is what the enemy has been doing from day one. So Adam and Eve, their sin wasn't simply disobedience and eating some fruit. Their sin was in believing the lie instead of believing God. And this is no different when we get to the New Testament and when it comes to the gospel itself, the story of Jesus and what he's done for us. The question presented to you is not, was Jesus a real person, right? That's not the question. And, and, and really, 
most secular scholars today will agree, clearly this guy was a real guy. Like clearly there was this person that lived in first century Judea who was a significant figure. So that's not the question we're being asked. And it isn't even, do you think Jesus was the son of God? That's an incredibly important question, but, but it's not as simple as that. The primary question is the same as it has always been. The same question that was being asked of the man and the woman in the garden, do you believe that his words are true? So it's not just do you believe he's the son of God, do you believe that when he said he was the son of God that he was speaking truthfully? C.S. Lewis says there's only three options here. He's either telling the truth, or he's a liar, or he's a lunatic. Those are our only options. And so the question being presented to you and me is, which one of those options do we believe? And the biblical measure of your belief, or what the Bible calls faith, like belief that his words are true, that the biblical measure of that is the level to which you and I are willing to live as if his words are true. It's not just do we agree with it. The measure of its validity and reality in our lives is the level to which we are willing to live as if it is true. Not just claiming that I think he's truthful, but demonstrating it through my life. When we talk about faith, that's what we're talking about. Living as if the words of Christ are true. This is why James said that faith without works is dead, famously. He wasn't saying, if you don't treat other people kindly, or if you're not a nice person to other people, or if you don't help old ladies across the street or feed the homeless or whatever, if you don't do those kinds of good works, then you don't have real faith. No, he was saying you don't really have faith if you do not live as if Jesus is truthful. Not just as if he existed, but as if the things that he taught and demonstrated through his life are truth. And even though Habakkuk didn't know it, this gospel truth is what God was ultimately accomplishing through a more wicked nation like Babylon, invading Judah, God was setting the table in his timing for Christ to appear and not only declare truth, but also model truth in front of the watching world. Jesus wasn't just teaching on a hillside all the time. He doesn't say that God is to be believed. He models it through his obedient action, even to the point of death. And so let me do this this morning. I want to leave you with the words of Christ from John 14, this is him speaking to his disciples, his followers. And here's what he says to them. Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. Meaning, trust that God is truthful and good. Trust that I am truthful and good. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am you may be also. 
and you know the way to where I'm going. Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you are going. How can we know the way? And Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. And no one comes to the Father except through me. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father, and it is enough for us. Jesus said to him, Have I been with you so long, and you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does his works. Believe me that I am in the Father and the Father is in me, or else believe on the account of the works themselves. Jesus, even with his disciples, after everything that they had seen, Jesus is saying, believe me, trust me. Don't you see? Aren't your eyes open? Believe me, and not the lie. Not the story that other people would paint. Not the schemes of the enemy. Believe that when I say that I and the Father am one, that when you have seen me, you've seen the Father. And live as if this is the ultimate truth by which everything else is defined. And guys, we're literally sitting in a room halfway across the world from where this took place over 2,000 years later talking about this Jesus because these guys that he's talking to in this moment believed it. They believed it. And they followed that belief not with just some sort of mental assent. They followed it with obedient action. They lived their lives to the point of death as if those words were truth and not a lie. And we are being called to the same exact way of life. Jesus as the orienting center of everything. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word this morning. As always, thank you for the truth that we find in the pages of Scripture, truth that teaches us not just who we are, but who you are, and calls us to live lives in light of who you are. People transformed by your love and grace. People who are unrighteous and yet have righteousness attributed to them because of your sacrifice. Father, forgive us when we think we know better than you. Forgive us when we think we see the full picture when we don't. And God, draw us in to a deep-rooted and deep-seated belief in your truthfulness. That we would not believe the lies that are being spun in our own heads in the world around us by the enemy every day. Lies that would call us to believe that we surely won't die. That the things that you've said to us are not true and that we have to take action to save ourselves in some way. God, convince us of the lunacy of that. 
And may we truly find that our faith, our hope, our trust, our future is in Christ alone. That there is nothing else that we are looking to to save. Not money, not success, not career, not families, not relationships, not marriages, nothing. We love you, Jesus, and it's in your name we pray. Amen.